So we've been going through for the last night. This is the ninth time. So I believe that's nine weeks in a row. I maybe missed a week when I was sick, but so for 10 weeks now, we've been talking about the attributes of God. I've been calling this series God is, and every week has been God is real. God is absolute. God is personal. God is triune and so on. And this is number nine out of 10. So we've only got one more after this. And this is the one that I've been looking forward to. And we've started at the very, very bottom. We've started that God exists. There is a God. What kind of God is he? And then we got into what we call the necessary attributes of God, his omnipotence, his omniscience, and his omnipresence. And now we're into the omnibenevolence of God, which is the fact that God is all good, omnibenevolent. He's all good. And we're breaking that up into two parts. Last week, we looked at the justice of God. This week is the one that everybody likes because it's the one that saved our souls. God is love. We're going to talk about God's mercy, his grace, and his love tonight. When you look at the cross, the cross is a picture of judgment. And it's hard to think of it that way because that's been the sign of salvation for us. But that was God's perfect justice unbendingly executed. It was the reality of God's fairness and his necessity to judge sin poured out on his son, Jesus Christ. We talked about that last week. Isaiah 53 verse 10 says, It pleased the Lord to bruise him. And him, of course, Jesus Christ, the servant of the Lord. But why though? When you really think about it, Jesus was innocent. That was the whole thing. That was the whole court trial that we've talked about was a sham. It was a kangaroo court. It was just them wanting a certain verdict and doing whatever they needed to get it. It wasn't a fair trial. And least of all, Jesus, who there was nothing that he had done wrong. So why did it please the Lord to bruise him? And why was that fair? Why was that just? He did not deserve that punishment. How can you say that God is good when Christ suffered, as 1 Peter 3.18 says, the just for the unjust? You think about that and... There have been many atheists, especially atheist comedians, that love to make hay out of that. It's, oh, your God is so loving, he put his own son on the cross. Of course, ignoring the whole trinity and all that. But it is a question that should be answered. And it is answered. The Bible answers that question probably in the most famous Bible verse, at least in the New Testament, John three sixteen. Why would God put Jesus on a cross, even though he had done nothing wrong? For God so loved the world... That he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It was love. It was mercy. It was compassion. It was grace. Why would God do that? Because God is love. And this is the thing about talking about the love of God. Up till now, we've talked about the necessary attributes of God. Things that have to be true if God is God. God does not have to be love. God does not have to be merciful. Because if you're going to look at nature, nature is unflinching, it's unbending. If it's cold, the thing out in the cold is going to die. If there's no food, the thing with no food is going to die. But the good news about who God is, is that God is also love. He's merciful. He's compassionate. He's gracious. Now, God is just. Sin must be punished. There's no way around that. A good judge is not going to let the criminal go free. We began with that knowledge in the Old Testament. But even in the Old Testament, you see expressions of God's love. In Isaiah chapter 1, when the prophet has been blasting the children of Israel for all of their sins, 
There's a point in it where the Lord says, come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Even in the midst of God's judgment, he says, look, we can talk about this, can we? Let me heal you. There's a part in Ezekiel where he says, why will you die? Why are you going to do this to yourselves? God's mercy is evident, and it's especially evident in his deferral of judgment. When Adam and Eve sinned, remember the Bible said, on the day that you eat of that fruit, you shall surely die. But the day that they ate of it, they didn't die that day. They died some 900 years later. They had begun to die, and you saw the character and the morality of humanity begin to atrophy right away with Cain and Abel, but they didn't die physically. That in itself is God's mercy. He deferred judgment. He didn't judge right away. Sin must be punished, but God said, I'm going to wait until I can satisfy my justice while at the same time preserving those whom I love so much. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, God is love. God is not only justice, he is love. He's perfect in his wrath, and he is perfect, and he is persistent in his compassion. As we see in the atonement, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, In this the love of God was manifested towards us. That is, here's how we saw the love of God more than anywhere else. That God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. God sent his son to die so that we could live. Jesus' death was enough to satisfy God's justice and provide a way of escape for us. And that is a big, deep, rich vein of theological gold we could dive into. But for right now, it's enough just to say it. There is no love greater than that. Jesus even said that, John 15, 13, before going to the cross. No greater love than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Like the buddies in some World War II movie who throw themselves in front of the bullet for their friends. Jesus said that is the greatest love that there is. And that's the love that he demonstrated. Love is choosing the highest good for someone else, regardless of the consequences to yourself. And that's exactly what God did. In Jesus' death, God communicated his love for mankind in the strongest way possible. That he was willing to take what we deserved upon himself so that we didn't have to. So when we speak of God being omnibenevolent, being all good, we need to also talk about his love. You can't just talk about his justice. His justice is indispensable, but it's been tempered by his love. And it's not even tempered by his love. Tempering means that you're, you're kind of calming things down. You want to make sure that it's, it's under control, right? But that's not even the case. God's justice is not diminished by his love any more than his love is minimized by his justice. Just as Jesus is 100% God and 100% man, God is 100% just and 100% compassionate. That is why he poured out the full scale of his justice, but he took it upon himself. That he might, as Romans 3.26 says, be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's the love of God. The world is tough. The world is hard. We've been reading through those Psalms on Sunday where the psalmist says, Lord, this isn't fair. Why don't you do something about it? The Bible is, is very honest about how the world is. But the thing that can soothe the troubles of this world is knowing that God loves us and that there is a happy ending to this terrible story. A story that is full of torture and slavery and concentration camps and all the rest of it is going to have a happy ending because the love of God is active in the world. 
And we love talking about the love of God, and there's nothing wrong with that. The mercy of God has been the inspiration, I think, for more prayers and more thanks than any other subject. All the best worship songs are about what? God's love. Because we feel it so deeply. Jesus said he was forgiven much, loves much. So when you look God's justice in the face, but you know that the Lord loves you anyway, that produces an overflow of love out of your own heart. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4 says, God who is rich in mercy, rich with mercy. He's a billionaire of mercy. Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. You maybe have heard somebody say this to you when you explain the gospel to them. Well, why would God ever do that? Because he loves us that much. We rejoice in the love of God. And we love him because of his love. The Bible says we love because he first loved us. Just as we fear him because of his justice, we love him because of his compassion. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But I would say the end of wisdom is the love of God. And it's very common to take the Old Testament and say, the Old Testament God is the mean, just, crabby one. And the New Testament God is Jesus. And we really like Jesus. That is not a good thing. If you know your Bible very well, you understand that the the love of God saturates the whole Bible. There have always been people in the church that wanted to do this. In fact, some of the first heretics in the church were those that were saying, you know what, I don't really like that Old Testament God. We should keep the New Testament God. And that has had countless iterations throughout history. And there are people that want to come out and say, well, you know, Jesus is really nice, but he had to get in the way so that God wouldn't smash us to pieces. God was just ready. No, no, you can't do that. First of all, because of the Trinity. And second of all, because of what the Old Testament itself says. And if you want to go that way, by the way, the New Testament has plenty of brutal descriptions of God's wrath and justice too. You can't chop it up. God is a whole person. If you read in Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17, for example, this is Old Testament. Zephaniah. Judgment, minor prophet. Says, the Lord your God is in your midst. The mighty one. That's kind of frightening, right? The Lord is in your midst when you know who he is. But he will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. That's Old Testament. Old Testament is full of the love of God. Just as the New Testament is full of the justice of God. We can't pit them against each other. They work together in harmony, brought together on the cross. As we talk about the love of God also, we need to be careful not to confuse that love with romance. When we say love, we typically think of romance. If you say, I love you, it's a very serious thing, especially for young ladies who are dating young men. A lot of fellows, we don't take that word quite as seriously. Like, I love you, babe. And she goes home, he loves me. And he didn't really think that much about it. But that's how we think of the word love. We hear love, we think romance. You hear love, you hear Valentine's Day, hearts, flowers, chocolates, the whole deal. And love is certainly present in romantic relationships. You want to have that kind of love. And the Bible even uses the metaphor of marriage to describe his relationship to us. But love is defined as the sympathetic disposition of God's heart. It's not just love like between a husband and wife. It's the love like between a father and a son. Or between two comrades, brothers in arms. It goes beyond that. And there are three elements that I've identified to God's love here. There's that that sympathy, as I said, that desire to help us like a father has with his kid. You love your kid, hopefully, probably. Even if your kid does something crazy, you still love them because there's that natural filial bond between a father and a son 
or between a mother and a daughter, and you can switch all those around as much as you want. That's because the Lord created us. He made us, and he loves his creation. Just naturally. This is not like God treats us like anybody else. He made us in his own image. He crafted us with his own hands in the Garden of Eden. That's that, that natural sympathy, you could say. And then there's also that preference. Not only is it just my heart naturally goes out to you, there is an element of choice in this. God chose to create us. He chose to treat us differently than the rest of creation. And I would say that all elements of love, all good relationships that have love in them, want to move from step one to step two. You want to move from just sympathy and feelings, with nothing wrong with them, but you want to move past that to the point of choice. When you decide to marry somebody, you are saying, I am going to choose to love them for the rest of my life and their life, even if that initial sympathetic emotional response is no longer there. Why did God not create dolphins in his image? He could have. There's nothing stopping him. He didn't. He chose us. He created man in his image. And that's that choice that God made. The Lord, when he created the world, he said, I'm going to love them more than I love everything else. And you could quibble about that, say, well, shouldn't it have been that God chose us and then he loved us? I'm not diving into that. The point is that not, God not only cares about you, he intentionally prefers you. He chose you as a person. Jesus even said to his disciples, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. And this number three drives him to mercy. Mercy is when God acts in order to do what is best for us. He places his judgment on hold because he's chosen us. Not only does he have those feelings for us, that sympathy, not only does he have that choice, that preference for us, but he acts on it in an act of mercy. Not only did I choose to love them forever, but I'm going to do whatever it takes to love them forever. And we in our relationships hopefully move in that direction too, from sentiment to decision to action. I feel this way about you, therefore I choose to love you, therefore when the moment comes, I'm going to act on that love. And that's what God did. His desire to preserve his creation, despite its failure. Psalm 103 verse 3 says, As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. You see your kids. Your kids mess up. They do things. I was sitting on the porch the other day reading a book, and Micah got a squirt gun, and he decided it'd be fun to shoot down bumblebees with his squirt gun. And a lot of them were floating around, so I got squirted right on my face and right in my book a whole lot. But I don't hate him. <laughs> I, I, I love him. I care that much. And even when he forgets, I told him five minutes ago, I'm sorry, I forgot, Daddy. I, I love him because he's my kid. The Lord feels that way about you, and it drives him not only to choose you, but to act on your behalf. You know, when we talk about the love of God, some of you probably knew I was going to go here. In the Greek language, there are four different words that are used for love. And I want to make a quick point, because a lot of people will say, you know, in English, we only have one word for love. Well, kind of. We, we also have the word adore. And we also have the word that I'm enamored with you, right? We have lots of words for love. We just don't use them very often. So maybe I should have paid more attention in vocabulary class back in high school. But when the Bible uses these words for God's love, there are certain nuances that we might not catch because they're translated with the same English word. So this is great because it shows us the depth of how God actually cares for us. So let me run through these real quick. You've probably heard this before. There's the Greek word storge, which is just common love, right? This common love. It's being part of a group. It's being part of a team. We have storge for each other. It's, it's a connection and it's a real connection. It gave me a strong connection, but, you know, it's... 
it's not marriage, you understand. <laughs> the next one is philia. This is brotherly love. It's Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. It's more personal. It's more intimate. Brotherly love. You, you might be on a team and there's that storge love, but you've got those few that you've got that bond. There's a philia love there. We've also got the word eros in Greek, which of course is where we get the word for erotic, meaning romantic or sexual love. And this is between a husband and a wife. This is a special, different kind of love. But there's also agape. You all know this one. You've heard the word agape before. You might not know any Greek words. You know the word agape. And maybe koinonia. That is that unconditional, deeply abiding love. God loves you with agape love. When it talks about God's love and Christ's love in the New Testament, it's using the word agape. The Lord does not love you just because you're part of the team. I think this is where we think a lot as, as, as Christians. Maybe it's just me. But I'm part of God's church. Of course he loves me. Right? So it's, it's not like there's anything special about it. It's not like there's anything particular about it. It's like you might have been on a, on a team with a, a great coach and he kind of knew who you were and he knew you by your last name. And like, oh, I was on that team. And like, oh, did you know that coach? Yeah, well, I mean, kind of. Yeah, we were teammates. But, you know, or you're in, you're in the army. You might have served under a certain general, but it doesn't mean he knows who you are. That's how we think of ourselves in the church sometimes. That we're on God's team, but there's nothing really that special about it. No, no, no. That's not the word it uses. And he loves you more than just a close friend or a close acquaintance. And of course, it would be inappropriate to speak of God loving us with erotic love. Because God is not even physical in the first place. No, God loves you with that agape, unconditional, deeply abiding love. Abiding, that continuing, ongoing love. He cares about you personally. You know that? He cares about your likes and your dislikes and the things that you enjoy, and your day-to-day -day details, and your biggest struggles. This is being streamed on Facebook right now. We like to put these things out on Facebook. I want everyone to know what I like. I want them to know what I did today. I want them to know when I'm upset. I want them to know what things I care about. There's a need in our hearts for that. That we want to be loved that way. We want somebody that cares about us that much. And this is why so many times we'll say of the person that we're married to, they're my best friend. I can talk to them about anything. They know everything about me. They know all those silly little things that nobody else really cares about. You know a lot of details about your husband or wife that nobody else would be interested in. <laughs> but the Lord cares about that in your life. We don't have to just come to God like we're just super pious and we're kind of looking up at God and like, Lord, please don't strike me with lightning today. And I, I want to pray. What's some spiritual things I can pray for? God just wants to know you. He wants you to come and speak to him. He wants you to tell him about what's going on in your day. He wants to have a relationship with you, an agape abiding relationship with him. And that love is part of his character towards you. It has nothing to do with you. That's, that's important, isn't it? Because if God's love for me depended on me, my life would be like this. Some days I'm doing pretty good, but pretty much every other day I'm kind of down here. But God is love. God loved us first. We love because God loved. Jesus told Peter to forgive the man that sinned against him 70 times 7. Well, I, I messed up seven times a day. God's done with me. Is God less merciful than he told Peter to be? God told us to forgive one another in everything. He told us to love one another. Is God less loving than he told us to be? God loves us. And because God is love, 
We both desire to give love and we desire to receive love. But all of us know the pain of wanting the best for someone that you love and yet lacking the ability to do anything about it. You ever have a friend or a brother or a child who is walking away from the Lord, maybe getting caught up in drugs or whatever it is, and you're just powerless. They won't listen to you. You can't stop them. What are we supposed to do? Countless parents wake up in the morning. You're starting to get the day going. Maybe during the day you'll be able to forget about it. But in that early morning or that late at night when you're lying in bed, you just you can't get it out of your mind. What am I going to do about my kid, about my son, my daughter? How can I be a better friend, a better spouse to love them better? But God, here's the cool part. Because we've already talked about God is omnipotent and that he's omnipresent and he's omniscient. God is not limited in his ability to show love because God's not limited by anything. He does not sit in the heavens looking down on us going, I wish I could do something for you poor, poor people. No, no, no. From the foundations of the world, the Bible says, God knew what he would have to do. He says, if I create these people, here's what they're going to do. And if I want to hold on to them, here's what I'm going to have to do. And he said, okay. And he went for it anyway. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says that Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. You like that? The author, the beginner, and the finisher of our faith. For the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. And what was that joy? It was the redemption of his people. The Bible says God's arm is not so short that he can't save. God never fails. His love never fails. He was willing to endure the cross because he loved us that much. And not only does his love never fail against external obstacles, but God's love never faces internal threats either. God's mercy is not a posture that he'll take for a little while. On Tuesdays and Thursdays, I'll be merciful. And then I'll, on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, I'm going to be just, and we'll alternate Saturdays. God doesn't do that. Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 and 23 says, The Lord's compassions fail not. They are new every morning. God's got a fresh supply of love and compassion and mercy coming in every single morning. You're never going to reach the end of God's love as if there was a limit to God's love. When you say it out loud like that, you know it's crazy. Say that God's love is limited. But we act as if it's limited sometimes. Here's the deal. We are limited. God is not. We are finite. God is infinite. And love, like all of God's attributes, is as unending as he is. There's no worry that God's ever going to stop loving you. Romans 8, 38 and 39. I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Just try to stop God. From demonstrating his love to you. Not just at the cross, but every day. Every day God is having compassion on you. He's giving you the chance to get up and try again. He's stirring up your conscience to do the things that you know you're supposed to do. And he cares about you and wants to know you. You ever get into a prayer meeting and you're trying to focus on the Lord and you're thinking of all these problems you've got to talk about and the Lord just is like, why don't you just talk to me? Can't you just talk to me and tell me what you're thinking? Tell me what you're feeling today? My dad has told this story a million times, and I've told it here too, I know. But when I was in high school and I had a car and I had friends and I had things I wanted to do, I'd grab my keys, be hustling out the door, say, all right, dad, bye, I'll see you later. Dad goes, hold on, wait, 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 come on in. What? What is it, dad? Just come up here. And he'd make me come up the stairs and sit down on the couch. What, dad? And he'd say, how you doing, Tyler? How's your day? 
how are things? And I would roll my eyes and groan because I was in high school. But they just wanted to talk to me. They just wanted to know me and also wanted to mess with me a little bit. Let's be honest. <laughs> but that's how the Lord is sometimes. We come in, oh, Lord, there's all these problems. There's all these things going on. And God goes, how you doing? Tell me how you are. Can I tell you what I'm thinking about today? He wants to have that talk with us because God's got it. He's got it under control. He's like, yeah, we'll deal with that. I'm not bound by time. I can go back and fix it yesterday if I want to. But the Lord just wants to know us. We can't list the ways that God's love is demonstrated. He blesses us with happiness while we're alive. Why should we be happy? There's so many terrible things going on. Why should we be happy? Because the Lord's like, I created this world to be lived in. To give abundant life to my people. God gives us that. He gives us space to repent when we sin. Aren't you glad that God doesn't just drill you every single time you do something wrong? God will give you space. I know you'll repent in a few days or in a few hours or in a few minutes. So I'm going to let you do that. He offers us the opportunity to be saved even when we're not looking for it. So many of us have stories where we were saved. I wasn't thinking about God ever. And then somebody brought the gospel to me and in a moment I knew I needed to come to Jesus. And he listens to our prayers. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and we'll wrap it up with this here, verses 4 through 8. This was written as an exhortation to believers from Paul. He was writing to the church, and he was going to tell them, this is how you are to love each other. But what's great about this? Because God is love, we know that this whole thing describes God. This describes who God is. This is what God's love is like. Let's just listen to this. And every time you hear the word love, you can replace the word God or Jesus. Because this is what he's like. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not boast. Love does not parade itself. Is not puffed up. Does not behave rudely. Does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Thinks no evil. Does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, and love never fails. Isn't that awesome? Aren't you glad that God does not behave rudely towards you? I love making fun of other cultures' gods because those are the pantheons that we left behind to serve the living God. Those gods are rude. I'm in a bad mood, so I'm going to turn you into a spider today. I'm in a bad mood, so I'm going to take all your children. You're never going to see them again. God doesn't do that. God loves us that much. He's not envious. He's not boastful. The Lord, if anybody had the, the right to trash talk, it's God, isn't it? We say this about athletes that come out and they'll say something really snarky in the beginning of a press conference before the game starts. We're like, that's so rude. And then they go out in the game and they do exactly what they said they were going to do. Like, well, he can back it up. God can back it up, but he doesn't boast. Because he loves us that much. He doesn't think evil. Believes all things. God always thinks the best of your motivations. Isn't that awesome? When you say, Lord, I know I said it yesterday, but I'm saying it again today. I'm going to serve you with all my heart. The Lord says, all right, let's do it. The Lord doesn't go, yeah, right. You've said that every day for the last four years. That's not our God. That's not Jesus. The Lord endures all things. Hopes all things. Lord hopes only the best for you. And he never, ever fails. His love never fails. That's, there's never a day where God's love is steady, steady, and then it wobbles, and that was the day that you happen to do something bad, so you get toasted. No, God's love never fails. He's steady. It's backed up by his power. His love is backed up by his Godhead. And God is good. That's what that means, right? Omnibenevolent. He is maximally good, both in his justice 
and his love. He does not come short in any virtue. And there is no vice to be found within him. His justice is there. It strikes holy fear into our hearts. It's appropriate to be fearful of the Lord in that sense. But his mercy is what gives us the hope of salvation. And it's a hope that will never disappoint it because it's God. (laughs) God's not going to be stopped. The knowledge of God is not just academic. We're running through this long list, nine things now, of who God is. But true knowledge of God should lead to worship. And I think that the love of God should, more than anything else, maybe lead us to worship. That God loves you. God cares about you. The Bible says, cast all your cares upon the Lord. Why? Because he cares for you. He cares about you specifically. To know God is to be overwhelmed by his glory and his love. And as the Bible says, the Lord is good and his mercy, his love, his grace, his compassion endures how long? Forever. 